0: Welcome to another edition of Ecumenical Musings, where we look at developments in ecumenism in Australia and other parts of the world. I'm Richard Tewton, and it's a pleasure to be with you once more. In this episode, we are focusing on one of the fundamental reasons and concepts that forms the heart of modern ecumenism. After all, ecumenism, as we have it today, was developed for a reason. It didn't just happen by itself. Even though some may think that it is God-given, there needed to be something that inspired people from different church traditions and backgrounds to start the ball rolling. Many years ago, I was privileged to be selected by the powers that be at the time to read the Gospel at the Eucharist, marking my ordination as a deacon within the Anglican tradition. The Gospel passage was from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. The key words from this passage are Jesus' prayer to God the Father, that the disciples be one, just as he and God the Father are one. Scholars have identified that the setting for Jesus' prayer is in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately before his rest on the night of his betrayal. It is this plea that the disciples be one in God and in Jesus that has haunted many church leaders lay and ordained over the centuries. It has haunted them not because of what the Church was, is and can be, but because of what the Church has not been. As we all know, the history of the Church is littered with instances of bad behaviour, rejection, violence and ignorance. While some have revelled in the often naked pursuit of power by the Church over the centuries, others have worried long and hard about what to do about it. From their perspective, The Church's oneness should be seen to be real, attentive and active, rather than stuck back in the Gospel pages, to be trotted out as a hopeful ideal and read during ordination services. The modern ecumenical movement sprang from these roots. Their desire to act may have had impetus from two world wars during the 20th century, but it is safe to say that the desire for change can be traced back into the 19th century when the World Mission Conferences began to be held. Critics have often dismissed these conferences as being too European in focus. The 1910 Edinburgh Conference, for example, consisted of a lot of European church leaders and very few church workers and leaders from countries where the missionary endeavours of the previous couple of hundred years had occurred. Colonial churches still relied on Europe to send personnel and leaders. They were not autonomous, but depended on the Mother Church for funds, personnel, and leadership decisions. Yet even then, there were those who were ready to begin the process of forming an ecumenical identity of which we are now enjoying the fruits. That is not to say that the churches up until that time ignored each other completely. When I was teaching an Australian church history course a few years ago, I came across the way in which some Protestant churches reacted to the advent of the gold rushes in Victoria during the 1850s. Realising that it was not feasible for each individual church to set up facilities for what could be a limited period of activity, they decided to pool resources when it came to the provision of such items as buildings, furniture, Bibles and hymn books. They still held separate services and conducted their baptisms and other forms of ministry according to their particular tradition. However, they did operate cooperatively from the same premises and occasionally used each other's personnel to act on the collective behalf. These churches would not have seen this as an ecumenical activities, but in many ways it showed what could be achieved, even though it was a limited approach. How the would-be miners and their families, if they brought them, reacted to this form of activity is unknown. Back now to the 20th century. I usually tend to be an optimist when it comes to the development of new ideas and concepts. I firmly believe that things take time to come to fruition. The problem we have as human beings is that we won't take the time to allow things to grow and bear something that will last. We are in a hurry because we want to make our mark as quickly as possible. This is true in many aspects of society and its activities. We set up performance indicators in order to reach them in the quickest possible time. If we don't reach them, then we tend to cancel the project and move on to one that will bring the desired result. Yet scripture seems to be saying that there is no distinct timeline for the things of God to be achieved. Jesus probably knew when he prayed his prayer for unity that things would not change between the disciples immediately. The Gospel showed that the disciples were at times not unified. They argued with each other, connived to be given the best seats at the Lord's banquet, deserted Jesus in his hour of need, and even fell asleep as he prayed the prayer in the garden. Unified, they were not. In fact, they were probably displaying signs of total disunity by the time of Jesus at rest and subsequent trial. Other indicators such as fear and anger probably in the mix as well. Does this mean that Jesus prayed in vain? I like to think that he didn't. If we look at the English text closely, we see words such as ask and desire. Jesus asks on behalf of those present, that is the disciples, as well as those who will come to believe in him. This points not just to the present at that point of time, but to the future. There is no end time for the future of those who will come to believe in Jesus. The future included those who at the beginning of the 20th century began the thought processes and actions that began the modern ecumenical movement. It also includes those believers who are yet to come or have just begun their journey in life as Christian believers. No, Jesus did not pray in vain. He was, according to St John's Gospel, straddling the present and and the future. It is very much how we pray as we engage in conversation with God through our worship and quiet times. We're looking to the present and the future when we offer our own petitions. So Jesus' prayer for unity was asking for the desire that his followers, whoever they are, may be one in the same way that he and God the Father are one, will happen wherever it occurred. All too often, as I have said, we are too impatient to work patiently and persistently at the task. Ministry and nurturing take time, often a lot of time. There are many stories of people praying for someone or something, and as time went by, there were no results of the prayer to speak of. In fact, things tended to move backwards rather than forwards. Then, after a long time of persistent prayer, especially when we least expect it, something happens and the prayer is answered. I like to think that Jesus' prayer for unity is like that. Jesus has prayed and as time has moved on, others have taken up the prayer and things begin to move and take shape. This does not mean that it has been smooth sailing along the way. There have been setbacks. Often they have been big setbacks that have taken churches many years, if not centuries, to recover from. Hurts are not easily forgotten and linger on in the memory for a long time. The road to unity is littered with such situations. Yet the plan is still there and is slowly being put into action. We often think that when we pray, God will make things happen through God's power. Our role is to enjoy what God is doing. In part, I believe that is true. We do enjoy what God is doing for us in answer to prayer. However, God does not wave a magic wand and in the words of a Star Trek character, make it so. God depends on the very people who pray and ask that something can be done in a particular situation. The fruition of Jesus' prayer for unity needs a cooperative approach. If we go back to the Gospel reading from which I began this focus, Jesus prayed knowing the personalities of the disciples, and no doubt knew that what he was asking for could not be achieved overnight. As has been said many times during these COVID times, it is not a sprint, but a marathon. Those whose hearts and minds were stirred enough to begin to look seriously at ways to implement Christ's unity in their present situation came to their conclusions after a lot of thought. No doubt the different world mission conferences, especially the one held in Edinburgh in 1910, offered a means and an atmosphere that enabled more serious thinking and discussion to occur. Along the way, others joined the conversation until the point was reached in the early part of the 20th century where more concrete action could be implemented. Intriguingly, the First World War played its part in accelerating this process. The regret that the war had occurred with the huge loss of life, along with the destruction of the fabric of many countries, including Europe, the Middle East and Africa, push different people to look at ways of promoting peace and harmony between nations. As well as the budding ecumenists of this period, there were in the secular and political fields leaders who were looking at forming a world body to provide a forum where nations could gather and uphold the values of peace and stability without resorting to the age-old fallback position of going to war in order to exert power and influence. Hence, the League of Nations was created as the forerunner of the now United Nations. Perfection in these lofty thoughts and ideals is never guaranteed. As we have noted through this episode, it has never been smooth sailing. For every step that has been gained, a few steps have had to go backwards. Given those scenarios, we can still rejoice in what has been achieved. Today, churches work together in ways that would have been considered unprecedented 50 to 60 years ago. Traditions that previously ignored each other have at least been talking through the various dialogues, if not actually engaging in more deeper projects and activities. A slow realization has grown that it is better to work together to provide a distinct Christian voice and action than have a hundred disparate voices trying to achieve the same ends. The question is though, is this the unity that Jesus was asking for when he prayed his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? A swift answer could be, probably not. After all, churches still seek to retain their traditions, theological perspectives and biblical understandings that they have always had. Their history and life often depended on holding their particular positions on these matters. Some churches see themselves as Evangelical, Pentecostal, Protestant, Catholic or Orthodox, while others, even within these labels, choose to say that they are liberal or conservative. To the outside person looking in, it looks as if confusion reigns without any sign of unity at all. So is the unity Jesus speaks about a reality or a myth? Is it achievable or is it just as elusive as ever? The answer is, I believe, not as simple as it looks. We could say that there is a spiritual unity at work. Each church holds the same beliefs about God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They also believe in the existence of a triune God. They hold baptism as the starting point in a believer's faith journey as part of their membership of the church. There is a unity there about the basics of the Christian faith that should not be discounted. There is also a unity of action when it comes to issues surrounding social justice. Churches have worked together and continue to work together in regard to climate change, the prevention of sexual and family abuse, care of refugees and assistance to those in need due to unemployment and illness. While individual situations have not often worked out on the whole, good and positive outcomes have been achieved. There is then a unity, but perhaps not the close one that Jesus was and is aiming for. It is like many things, a work in progress. The Christian way of life, and especially the ecumenical movement, is always a work in progress. It is not static and will always be that way. If it was, it would have died a long time ago. As it is, there are many, many Christians who are still inspired by the words of Jesus' prayer, as found in John 17. This inspiration continues to translate into action that has caught the imagination of many people throughout the world. Jesus' prayer continues to be answered in a developing way. There is no hard and fast method of achieving. After all, it is happening not in our time, but in God's time. And that is probably a good thing. Thanks for listening to this edition of Ecumenical Musings. You may not agree with everything I've mused on, but I hope it has given you more food for thought on this important topic. I'm Richard Teuton and I look forward to your company on another occasion.